Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This is a special bonus report on Season 7 of Jury Duty, as we cover the retrial of Danny Masterson on sexual assault charges. On today's episode, we present our conversation with blogger Tony Ortega about his coverage of the closing arguments in the Masterson retrial. That's all coming up, right after the break. Before we begin this episode, a quick word about two other Crime Story Media productions. October 2014, was David Martinez responsible for killing Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond? That's at the heart of Night Raid, a new podcast from Crime Story Media. Subscribe or follow wherever you get this podcast. Also join us on this feed beginning next week for the debut of Jury Duty Season 8, The Trial of Alex Murdoch. And now, Jury Duty continues its coverage of Danny Masterson's retrial with another in our series of conversations between Jury Duty creator Carrie Antholis and Underground Bunker blogger Tony Ortega. On today's episode, we present a conversation between Carrie and Tony about the closing arguments in the Masterson retrial. And here is that chat. Tony Ortega, thank you again for joining us. Great to be here, Carrie. Well, we're almost at the end of the road, Tony, and this week you reported on the closing arguments in the trial, as well as Judge Almeida's instructions. You've made a point of emphasizing how the prosecution was particularly good, in your view, at laying out the narrative for what happened to the three alleged victims in the trial, as well as the fourth prior bad acts witness. Would you take us through the closing arguments and highlight for us how you think the prosecution was effective in presenting the narrative of why these are crimes that the defendant should be convicted of? Right. That was my criticism of the first trial, the prosecution. I thought there were many good things they had done, but I felt that they didn't present a a cohesive narrative, as much of a narrative as I thought a jury might want. I thought a jury needs to be told a story, you know, and that things didn't hold together well. Like, for example, with the drugging, they, they would present evidence that each of these women had been given a drink and then they had felt really it unusually intoxicated, and then basically hope the jury concludes on its own what had happened. This time, it's so much more overt. You're just outright saying he drugged them. And it's part of this overall method that he had. So that's what I I thought that maybe a jury needed a little more help seeing this overall picture, the things that connected everything. And they really they really focused on that, that this time, I thought. Another big difference was that Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller had done all the questioning and all the closing statement last time. 
This time, his companion there, Deputy DA Ariel Anson, had taken on quite a bit of the questioning herself, and she had done a very good job. And then I heard them talking about how they were going to split up the closing statement duties. Now, the, the government, the people, they get to go twice. They get to go first, and the clo- first to begin their closing, the, the defense then goes, and then the state or the government comes on one more time and as rebuttal to whatever the defense has said. And they talked about splitting that up. Now, I didn't know who was going to go first, but I really liked that idea. I thought, you know, it, I think it's a great idea for the, them to share those duties. So on Tuesday morning, it was Ariel Anson, the, the Deputy DA Ariel Anson, who, who stepped up and began the closing, uh, which I thought was a bold choice because that tends to be the longer of the two portions. And I got to tell you, Carrie, those first words she said, it all starts with a drink, was so bold to me because that's how a, that's how an author starts a story, right? And that was the thing I had said. And again, I'm just a journalist watching. I don't, you know, some legal experts might have a different point of view. To me, I felt the jury needed a story and that those words were the way you begin a story. And I got to tell you, she had everybody in the palm of her hand just after that, that she's just telling you that this man has this pattern. He gives you a drink and then, you know, you lose control and he needs to be in control. So I just thought that was such a bold choice for her to start that up. And she told this story about how Danny Masterson takes your choice away. You don't want to have sex. That's not an option. You know, you don't want to have anal sex. That's not your choice. It's Danny's choice. He's in control. He's put something in your drink. I just thought right off the bat, this was so much better than what they had done last time. And she kept up then when she started to get into the actual details. Before you get into the details, the one other aspect of the beginning of her closing that I noted based on your incredible transcription of the closing as it was happening was when she said most of these women were in the Church of Scientology where rape isn't rape. What better hunting ground? Yeah. I also thought that was a very effective way to open this thing and round out the picture of who Danny Masterson was and the environment in which he was able to commit these crimes. Right. And it's so crucial to understanding, for example, why it took so long for this case to come to court, is that these women, at least the three that he's facing charges on, were all Scientologists at the time. And when these attacks heard between 2001 and 2003, he was on a hit TV show, that 70s show, and that he was known as an upstat in Scientology. And any woman that came forward with allegations against him, we're going to find out that in Scientology, if you're victimized, it's your fault. And they don't want to hear about complaints against an upstat celebrity. And, and the victim ends up being punished. These were crucial and they were things we heard about throughout the trial. But what I really liked what Ms. Anson did was she showed you that, that Danny was taking advantage of this. He knew what he was doing. And that's why those words were so effective. What better hunting ground? Because he knew if these women came forward to the church, that they would be punished. Oh, what a setup for a predator. And that's the, that's the scene she was setting, was that this was a predator who found himself in a great situation for a predator. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We resume the conversation between Carrie Antholis and Tony Ortega with Carrie's question to Tony about the specifics of Ariel Anson's closing argument on behalf of the people of the state of California. Moving on to Anson's presentation of each of the individual alleged victim stories, she began with describing the escalation of abuse in the Jane Doe 3 case. Can you just take us through the way that she told that story within the story? So she was following the progression of the actual testimony itself. Jane Doe 3 was the first of the alleged victims to testify. And in this, in this part, she was just basically summarizing what we had heard, you know, just basically explaining that Jane Doe 3 was uh, 18 or something when she started dating Masterson, that they'd had a good first year, but then that things had started getting different and that Danny was becoming controlling and abusive. And so she went through each of the things we heard about that, you know, when she came back from Paris one night and she didn't want sex and he dragged her across the floor by her hair. And then this pattern emerged where she didn't want sex. He would be very abusive about it and she would give in. And what the prosecution and, and Anson in the closing want really wants the jury to understand is that when then when this November 2001 incident comes and he's forcing himself on her and she has to pull his hair, that is the charged incident. But to her at the time, it wasn't unusual. It was something that happened a month later in December 2001, where she went to this restaurant, had a glass of wine, and then remembers nothing until waking up the next day and she's injured. She goes to the bathroom, finds she's bleeding, confronts him, and he admits that he's had sex with her. He sodomized her while she was unconscious. And that this shocks her so much. It's so unusual and different than what came before that's what leads her to go to the Church of Scientology. And like I said, they then punish her for being a victim and put her through this ethics program. So, I mean, these were all things that we had heard before. She was just summarizing them and laying out this progression. But I think what the DAs really want the jury to understand is that even though it's the December 2001 unconscious sodomy that's the last straw for her and that leads her to come forward, that's not the charged incident. It's the November one. And, you know, this was really confusing in the first trial. And I think Ms. Anson did a good job of helping them understand the difference and the progression because Cohen, you know, didn't really attack it as much this time as he did the previous time. I think he knew that they were doing a better job of explaining that. It was a little clearer for the jury because it's, it's complex, Carrie. It's even I find myself, you know, having a difficult time explaining that whole situation. I hear you, Tony. But what I was really struck by in, again, reading your notes of the closing argument was how Ariel Anson 
tied up the reason that Jane Doe 3 is the opening witness in this case. Right. And is the kind of glue that brings it all together. Because she essentially was willing to let it all go because of how powerful Scientology was. But when she learned about Jane Doe 1 and about these other victims and that the Church of Scientology had done nothing about Danny Masterson, even after hearing not just of her experience, but of other women's experiences, that's what motivated her to contact the Austin Police Department. And then the LAPD detectives traveled to Austin to talk to her. Right. And there's this was something that I think benefited from the increased amount of Scientology content is I think it was important for them to understand something really key in Jane Doe three story. It may be a little difficult for those of us not in Scientology to understand. And that's simply that when she went to the, the celebrity center to complain to, to inform them about this event that had happened with Danny that this ethics officer, Miranda Scoggins, told her, well, that's not rape. You're in a relationship. You can't rape, rape you. And that they could handle the situation. And what's really key to understanding is that Jane Doe 3 said she believed them. She accepted that Scientology knows best, that they, they convinced her of these things. And it's not till years later when she's married to another man, Cedric, and he hears this story for the first time in like 2010 and he tells her that's rape what you're describing to me is rape the uh, the unconscious sodomy in december and she kind of realized yes she knew that but that she trusted the church and then it's another six years before she finally realizes not only what cedric has told her is true but that there were other victims and how that all came about is pretty interesting and complex but Ariel didn't get into the, that detail too much, except to point out that she felt responsible because Jane Doe 3 had trusted the church to, quote, handle Danny, and then to find out there were other victims and that they had been victimized after her. That's what she felt really responsible for. She felt guilty about by accepting Scientology's, you know, assertions. She had allowed other women to be harmed. That's how she felt personally about it. And that's why she decided to come forward. And yeah, Anson did a great job explaining all that and focusing on Jane Doe 3, as you say, the glue that held everything together. And then Anson followed up on Jane Doe 1 by taking us through the series of accusations that she brought forward to the church, presented a similar narrative about the church trying to suppress and control the language of the situation. Ultimately, after she went to law enforcement, initially offering her a $400,000 settlement. But then again, when Jane Doe 1 got wind that there were other victims and that Scientology hadn't done anything about Masterson's alleged behavior. In 2016, she joins with these other two Jane Doe's to bring her charges forward. Right. And, you know, there's some interesting details in there where Jane Doe 1, I guess, was initially kind of horrified because Jane Doe 3 was reaching out to her in a very public way, like on Twitter or something. It's like, hey, take my name off your Twitter. But that's, that's partly how they found out about each other, apparently. 
And it was shocking to them each to find out their weight. There's others. Yeah. I mean, Anson, again, is tying together these things really well and how, you know, these women had, had were learning that they were victims. Now, you know, they have to be careful because they weren't supposed to share details. They didn't share details, but they did know that they were each victims. And this is why they went forward. And then they heard about a third person, Jane Doe too. And again, Anson did a very nice job of overlapping the kinds of drinks that these women were given, one of vodka and cranberry juice, another of vodka and fruit punch or something. And then just as Jane Doe 3's husband said that what she'd experienced was rape, similarly, Jane Doe 2 told her friend Jordan Ladd the story. And Jordan Ladd was the one that came forward and said, well, that sounds a lot like rape to me. Yeah. But even then, I think Jane Doe 2 had a difficult time using that word and thinking of it that way. I think it was actually, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but I think it was Mueller who was saying, it's important to remember, it doesn't matter what they called it at that time. What matters is what happened. But that's skipping ahead. I'm sorry about that. But yeah, Anson, again, is putting these three together so well and making you see the pattern, see the repetition, but also that they had differences, important differences, and that each of these women had disclosed what happened to them to other people before they knew about each other. So that's another thing that she repeatedly brought up. She had an interesting way of sort of anticipating the defense, and she would stop and she would say, now the defense would have you believe. (laughs) These were actually kind of an entertaining part of her closing. Now the defense would have you believe there's a grand conspiracy. And so she started to kind of knock down Cohen's points before he can make them. And one of them is that, you know, you're going to hear that there was like this conspiracy to create these stories. However, you know, Jane Doe 2 told Jordan Ladd what she said in 2003. Jane Doe 1 told her cousin Rachel in 2003. And these were years before these women knew each about each other. So that was definitely something Anson was trying to build into her closing was to, to try to anticipate some of the things that defense was going to say. What do you remember about the end of Ariel Anson's closing argument? You know, she, she did talk about Kathleen Jay. The uh, past bad acts witness, again, she related with the same with the drink. And she brought up a great point near the very end. I, I think I just kind of made it, but that there are differences between these four stories that were told. And, you know, she's anticipating that the defense is going to talk about contamination, that these women spoke to each other, that there's cross-pollination. And she said, but look at the differences. If there was cross, if there was contamination, why are there so many differences? So I think she did her best, not just to present what these women had said, not just to relate that the pattern that we saw, that it all starts with a drink with Masterson, that he's trying to take away their choice and he wants to be in control. But also the way these women had disclosed their stories argues against defense theories of contamination and collusion. I thought she just wrapped it up really nicely. Moving on to Philip Cohen's closing, he seemed to dive in almost immediately into the statement by Ariel Anson that minimized the little inconsistencies. And he tried to use that as a sort of a wedge 
to attack the reliability and believability of these witnesses. Can you unpack that, explain how he went about doing it, and then assess your perception of the effectiveness of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he was doing a couple different things with that, but you're right. The first thing, this is something I've seen him do at other times, is... He wants to give the impression that he's got this program, he's got a lot to tell you, but first he's got to deal with this thing he's so shocked that the prosecution said. He's done this a number of times, and in this case, he actually said something like, you know, I really like Ms. Anson. (laughs) Like, he's got to preface that, like, you know, because I'm going to say something negative. And he says... You know, I really like Ms. Hansen, but I'm really shocked to hear her talk about that she wants you to ignore these little inconsistencies. And the reason he's saying that, Carrie, is because his whole case is based on those inconsistencies. Of course, he's going to act like he's shocked by that. And then, you know, he goes through these things that he believes are differences, not just from what these women told investigators years ago, but just differences from the previous trial, which they always call a prior proceeding. They don't want to call it the first trial in front of the jury, but I'm sure the jury's figured that out by now. You know, for example, he started right off the bat. One one of the first examples was in the opening this time, Deputy DA Mueller had really dealt with the Jane Doe 1 gun issue with a kind of a interesting take where he was really trying to downplay the whole gun like oh she didn't think it was a threat it was you know not really central to her story and now cohen is saying yeah but now that you've heard her story you can see it's very central so he what he's doing there carrie i felt was this is not just women being forgetful or or women you know coming up with new details he wanted to kind of portray something sinister i really felt that through this closing argument of his that he was trying to portray that these women have not just changed their stories but that there's something nefarious about it you know for example with again with jane doe one and the gun he's all but suggesting that she imagined it or invented it and he had a reason why because without the gun there's no force. He often would cite the law here that they they are they are accusing Danny Madison of forcible raping. He read out the statute to them, so they understood very clearly that enforceable rape it involves a certain setup, but it's a, a man raping somebody that he's not married to. I, I don't know why that requirement is in there, but it's in the law. And that he overcomes the will of the woman through force or fear. That's the key. And that's why they couldn't, for example, charge the unconscious sodomy of Jane Doe 3. Not that that's not a crime. It is a crime to rape an unconscious woman, but it doesn't fit the forcible rape definition, which is overcoming the will of a woman through force or fear. So he's now saying, look, the gun is a problem. These initial reports didn't don't include the gun. Did Jane Doe 1 invent the element of the gun? So because otherwise there's no force in her allegation. I just thought that to me, it was a little bit of a stretch from him. And then Mueller later, as we'll see, really had a great response. It just felt like uh, Cohen was really pushing the idea that these women had invented details, that they were embellishing things, and they had reasons to do so. They had motives involving money. It felt like he was really pushing things to make the jury feel like they were being lied to. 
he, in fact, at one point used you to help make that point by saying that the prior bad acts witness Kathleen J, in his words, crystallized so much of what's gone wrong with this case and using the fact that her story changed from what she initially told you in her interview to what she testified to as some sort of evidence of nefarious intentions and tried to extend that to the entire group of alleged victims. Yeah, that was near the beginning of this. Yeah, as he pointed out that um, I interviewed Kathleen J. back in uh, 2021, and what she testified to was different than what was in my story. He actually subpoenaed me at one point, tried to pull me into the case to testify. My attorney fought it. We kept me out of the case. Uh, And I told you previously, Carrie, I I just don't want to be in a position to criticize or contradict a rape victim. I'm very uncomfortable with that. But yeah, I interviewed her, I wrote a story, and now two years later she's testified and Cohen was, you know, talk, pointing out differences in those things and, and he felt that there was something nefarious going on. And that's how he started his closing. Later he went through each of the Jane Doe's and he was doing similar things where, where again, it wasn't just that, you know, these women might have remembered some details later. He was accusing them of getting together, inventing details, and that it was all to basically pull one over on the jury. He really wanted them to feel like, you know, you need to watch out for this. So he does find some interesting inconsistent. Like, I'll tell you one that was interesting to me. He pointed out with Jane Doe 2, for example, that when she did disclose to her mother, when she did disclose to her friend Jordan Ladd, and her friend Rachel, she didn't mention drugging to any of them. And I thought that was an interesting point. He then sort of suggested that the adding the drugging was, again, because she doesn't have force in her description of her incident. That at one point, Detective Reyes asked her, were you worried that he was going to harm you? And she said, no. And he said, so where's the force? So again, it's like he's accusing them of adding details in order to bring things in to meet the needs of the the elements of this particular law. That's the overall conspiracy he's accusing them of. You know, as I was reading through your transcriptions and notes of the closings, there was one moment where Cohen made a comment about Danny Masterson bringing a towel for the woman to clean up his semen. And the woman had said that he was pretending to be a gentleman. And Cohen made a comment like, well, maybe he was actually being a gentleman. And that struck me as such a sour note in the middle of all of this. Did it read that way in the courtroom? You know, it was really indicative of what he was trying to do. I felt that that was such an important moment when you're trying to figure out what Cohen is suggesting because it was it really crystallized what he was trying to portray was that these were actually consensual acts that the women had added details to make them sound much worse because they had this intention to put Danny in prison, to harm the Church of Scientology. That gave you that glimpse that he is seeing what was actually a nice night between two people, and Danny was a gentleman, and it was consensual sex. It's only that these women are now turning it into something nasty and awful and a rape, you know? That's clearly what he had been getting at this whole time, and you're starting to get 
can see a, a picture of that emerge. I think Mueller really made him pay for that later. We'll get to that in a minute. But that was, I think, a real interesting moment where you could kind of see from Cohen's perspective what he believed was really going on, that these were much different incidents than these women were describing. That's a good segue, Tony, into Ronald Mueller's rebuttal closing, which started late in the day on Tuesday and went into early Wednesday. Can you take me through your impressions of what Mueller did? Yeah. So Tuesday afternoon, I think he started about 3.15. And so he didn't have a lot of time. And he mentioned that he would only be starting that day. And, you know, at first it was a little slow. I remember looking over at another reporter. We were kind of like, oh, here we go. You know, <laughs> Mueller's, all the all that momentum built up by Ariel Anson was now being dissipated out of the room by Mueller. He just wasn't doing too well initially. But then he really focused on something interesting. I mentioned that uh, Cohen had suggested that Jane Doe 1 had invented the detail of a gun because otherwise there's no force in her incident. And in this particular law that they're charging Masterson under, they're using a particular de definition I, I mentioned before, forcible rape, where it's overcoming the will of a woman through force or fear. And so Cohen has suggested Jane Doe 1 invented the gun to get that element. And then also with Jane Doe 2, that her incident also doesn't have force. Well, now Mueller addresses that. And I got to say, this is when he really picked up and got just very compelling. And he was saying, look at Jane Doe 1. When she pushed a pillow at Masterson, Masterson took the pillow and mashed it in her face and suffocated her until she passed out. Then when she came to, she reached for him. He pinned her arms back and put his other hand against her throat and squeezed. And he said, this is the essence of force. That's the force needed in this law. He's raping her while he's choking her. Really vivid. And, you know, Carrie, the, the thing is, I guess maybe it's the highest compliment you can pay a prosecutor, but it gave you the impression that Cohen had erred. You know, that Cohen had made a mistake by going there. That Mueller had provided a launching pad. And then the same thing with Jane Doe too, that no force. I mean, she's begging him to no sex, no sex. And he flips her over on all fours, grabs her by the hips, jackhammers her from behind. Again, Mueller says this, this is exactly the force that's needed in this law. So that was where, it was, although we didn't have a lot of time on Tuesday afternoon, that was very, very strong. And, and, it, and again, made it look like Cohen had sort of made a mistake. Then, the jury had the whole night to think about what Mueller had said. And then we get Mueller the next morning to finish his rebuttal. I'm sure Cohen couldn't have been too thrilled about that because Cohen couldn't say a word. He was done. So on Wednesday morning, uh, Mueller picked it up again. And once again, he started out kind of slow. He was making kind of a fine point about note taking and how you uh, aren't always going to say all the details your first time you are interviewed. Maybe you'll say more later. It was, a, it was a good point, but it just, you know, it was very academic. But then again, he picked up something really strong. And that was, you had mentioned, Carrie, that Cohen had said, uh, had pointed out the thing about Jane Doe too, that she had, when, when he offered to clean her up, she had said, oh, he was acting like a gentleman. And, and Cohen had said, well, maybe he was a gentleman. He wants the jury to think of this in a different way. Wow, Mueller really made him pay for that because he just took up that refrain. 
and just said, you know, when Masterson was suffocating Jane Doe one with a pillow, was he being a gentleman then when he was choking her? Was he being a gentleman then? I mean, it was a really effective litany and he just went through it with multiple details for a couple of the different women. And again, you got that feeling like, oops, Cohen made a mistake and Mueller's making him pay for it. So that in that way, I really felt that Mueller's bottle was really strong. Then what he did was he, he did something that I don't think we've really heard in this case before. He started talking about how the things Masterson is accused of, he had to plan for. These were not spontaneous acts, uh, making sure he had the drugs to put in these drinks, finding the right time to put the drink, the drug in the drinks, finding the way to get the drinks to the women then, making sure that they drank the drinks. And then, you know, the attacks themselves, that in each of these cases, there had to be a level of planning ahead. Then what he did with that was he introduced uh, this further moral sort of dynamic where he was saying now at each of those junctures there was a fork in the road and you know he must have realized what he was doing was wrong and he could have stopped he could you know okay he put the drink he put the drug in the drink but then he didn't have to give it to the woman he could have pulled back but that he went ahead and pursued each of these things and chose that way down the road. And the end result was it felt like Mueller had taken three crimes and turned them into 15 or 20, right? All these junctures that Masterson had reached and pushed forward really effective. And then finally, uh, after focusing on Masterson and his nefarious deeds for quite a while, he then brought it back to the women. And he reminded them that, you know, they were Scientologists. Scientology told them not to go to law enforcement, blamed them for being victims. And then later, when they did come forward to law enforcement, Scientology retaliated against them. And so he really wanted people to understand what these women have been through. Nobody signs up for this kind of treatment. Nobody wants to be on a witness stand talking about the most intimate, horrible details that they've been through. And that why were these women going through all this? No, it's not money. No, it's not something else. They want justice, he said. And and that's when he brought it home to the jury and said, they want justice and you can provide it for them. Only reasonable interpretation is that he's guilty. And if you find that he's guilty, you will bring these women justice. So that I thought that was, you know, maybe a little predictable with a pro- prosecutor in a case like this. But I thought he did a very good job of, of bringing it back to the women and then to the jury itself. That's how he ended his rebuttal. Is there anything else from jury instructions or from the first day of deliberation that you want to share with us, Tony? Yeah. So, like I said, Cohen just had to keep his mouth shut through all of that. He, he couldn't speak up while the jury was in the room. But once the jury left with the case and to begin deliberations, then Cohen rose. He had something to tell the judge. And he talked about how the prosecution had, he felt, improperly made, turned this into a drugging case. Danny Madison is accused of forcibly raping three women. He's not accused. There's nothing in forcible rape that involves drugging. And Cohen felt that the DAs were improperly turning it into a drugging case, and he moved for a mistrial. Now, he moved for a mistrial like eight times in the first trial. This was only his third time for this for this retrial. But it was, you know, it's classic Cohen. He felt that, you know, she should throw the whole case out because the DAs 
and improperly basically give an impression for the jury that they would then be deliberating on a case that they weren't deliberating on. But but Judge Omedo, and also he said, look, if, if you're not going to give me the mistrial, at least give me a sir rebuttal where the defense could you know bring the jury back out and he can then rebut that part of the DA's case closing. But she denied it. She said that, you know, she went back through her rulings pre-trial and uh, that allowed a lot more Scientology content and also drugging content. And there was a lot that she read from her ruling. But the thing that stuck with me was that she said, look, if the defense is going to zero in on what these women could and couldn't remember, that's related to them being drugged. And so the prosecution can bring in allegations of drugging because, you know, the fact that these women were in and out of consciousness, that they were having trouble with their eyesight, with their breathing, and that, you know, so that parts of those nights were, you know, forever gone. They just can't remember things. And the defense was basically trying to take advantage of that. The prosecution could then bring in allegations of drugging and that they are intertwined, the drugging and the forcible rape. So she rejected his uh, motion for mistrial and then the jury had it. So they had it by I think just a few minutes before 10 in the morning, Carrie. So they had basically a full day of deliberations. And I stayed in the courtroom the whole time. The judge has, has already informed us that she'll you know, give everyone notice and wait a couple hours after a verdict reaches so everybody can get back to the courtroom. But I wanted to be there in case the jury had a question in the first trial. The jury had a question the first day, um, but there was no question from this jury today. I don't know if that says anything, but uh, they got a full day in, almost a full day in today. And so we'll start uh, uh, the second day on Thursday morning. Well, Tony Ortega, once again, thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell people where they can find you and where they can join you in your verdict watch? Yes, please sign up for free emails at tonyortega.substack.com. You'll get every story I put out. We are on Verdict Watch, and I'll be getting out word as soon as possible if we hear something about a question from the jury, a request for readback, or you know anything else that comes up, including a verdict. Tony Ortega, thank you again. Thank you, Gary. And with that, we conclude this bonus episode of Jury Duty, the retrial of Danny Masterson. You can find Tony Ortega's Verdict Watch on the Masterson trial and sign up for his email list at tonyortega.substack.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at tonyortega94. We will present a special bonus episode of Jury Duty as soon as we have a verdict in the Masterson retrial. And, starting next week, look for Season 8 of Jury Duty, covering the trial of Alex Murdoch for the murders of his wife and son. Also, check out the Crime Story Media podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.